Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you are absolutely in the right place. Very happy to announce this is the 2018 season debut of one of our favorite series, Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future Radio. Let's see what the buzz on the street is. I have a quote from a website called smartcitiesdive.com. That's interesting. This is written by an article by Brent Todarian and Jillian Glover. Let me read the quote. Smart cities realize that engaging the broad public in the city-making process leads to better answers and a deeper public ownership of our future. That quote is so loaded with key words. Very exciting. And here, let me tell you a little bit about how we're going to expand that into our topic today. In our mobile-first, digitally connected world, consumers expect to access digital services. That's us. We're the consumers whenever and wherever we want. Citizens expect the same with their city governments. They want personalized communications based on their own preferred channels, wherever they are, locations, and circumstances. Is this possible? Yes, it is. I'm nodding my head up and down. The smart future city will use innovative and citizen-centric service delivery models. I love saying that, that put the citizen at the center. We have a panel of three experts located all around the world. They all know what smart cities are, and they may actually be in smart cities right now. Let me tell you briefly who they are, and then we'll get started. First up, we're welcoming a newcomer to Game Changers. He's Donovan Guin, G-U-I-N. Customer Engagement Consulting at IBM, and he is IBM's North America lead for SAP Hybris. Joining him on the panel is Kirk Talbot, that's T-A-L-B-O-T-T if you want to look him up, Deputy CIO of the City of Atlanta, Georgia. That's a fun city. And rounding out the panel is our friend Mike Eberhardt, who's been on Game Changers before. He's Global Industry Principal in Public Sector at Hybris Software SAP. So welcome to our three panelists. Donovan Guin is up first, and Donovan's sent me a quote from Helen Keller, 1880 to 1968, American author, political activist, lecturer, and the first deaf-blind person to earn a bachelor's degree. And if any of you have ever seen or heard of the movie or the Broadway show The Miracle Worker, it's a story of her life and her teacher, Ann Sullivan, who helped her become a very educated and very smart person. Here's the quote. We live by each other and for each other. Alone, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. Donovan Guin, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Talk to me about the quote. How does this relate to our topic today, which is smart city citizen engagement? Go ahead, Donovan. Well, thank you. Yeah, so the irony is that uh, this quote was from someone who uh, actually lived uh, near where I grew up, out in the countryside. But, you know, her world was really cut off from the community around her because of her inability to communicate. So I thought it was interesting, right, uh, that she had this remarkable insight and she was able to communicate it after the help from her friend, right, to learn how to uh, not only uh, communicate with people one-on-one, but she, she really was able to communicate with people more broadly. And I think open our eyes to our general interconnectedness, whether we're out in the country or in a city, 
right, in a, in a physical form of communication or digital. So I thought that was very interesting. It is very interesting. And, and what do you think Helen Keller would say if she had lived, oh, let's say two or three more decades, Donovan, into the beginning of the digital era, the first notes of AOL's music that I, I used to call my neighbors in in the 1990s and say, you got to hear this. You've got mail. And they all gathered around my computer and said, what in the world is that? I said, that's a handshake. They said, well, I'll shake your hand. It was very funny. What do you think she would have She would have. Uh, communicated, uh, would it have been wow or would it have been, oh, come on, I have to learn new stuff? What do you think she would have said? Uh, probably would have remarked at the ability to connect with people globally, right, just as we're doing on this, uh, this call. I know I'm from the Boston area, but I'm calling you from Paris. You know, our other guests are from other parts of the world dialing in. Uh, the Internet, um, you know, for someone who is unable to easily speak or hear, but maybe can use a digital form of communication with Braille and other kinds of readers and connect to other people around the world, whether they have that same disability or not, I think is, is really, really powerful, and she probably would have remarked on that. I, th- I think you're right. I think she would have welcomed it. Thank you very much, Donovan. Pleasure to have you on and to meet you, and looking forward to a lot of words of wisdom from you coming up in the rest of the show. And now our second newcomer is Kirk Talbot, Deputy CIO, City of Atlanta. I bet he knows a lot about smart cities. And Kirk has sent us a quote from R. Buckminster Fuller. Some of you may know him as Bucky Fuller. He was an American architect, systems theorist, author, designer, and inventor. And if you've ever heard of the term spaceship Earth, he coined that. How about synergetic? That was one of his. He was known for the geodesic dome, which was an invention. He also is the name that they've named carbon molecules after, called fullerenes by scientists uh, who was talking about the structure and mathematical resemblance to the geodesic dome sphere. Uh, Fuller lived from 1895 to, to 1983. So here's the quote Kirk has selected. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Go ahead, Kirk. How are you? Welcome. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So tell me, are you a big fan and reader of, uh, well, Fuller published more than 30 books. So how did you find this quote from Bucky Fuller? I think it found me. Um, I didn't go out in search of it, but when I stumbled across it, as you're wont to do in this day and age, it really resonated. I'd seen so many systems that I was attempting to change, and to hear his words kind of speak across time and say, you don't do it from the inside, you, you build a better model and let it make the old one obsolete, it really resonated. I think that's why it stuck with me. I appreciate that. Now, now, do you think that this is the definition of game changer, Kirk? I'm thinking out loud here. I didn't plan to ask you that. But do you think build a new model that makes the existing one obsolete? Is that, is that the definition of a true game changer? What do you think? I think if you're changing the game, yeah. If you're just putting window dressing on the game, it's not. But the essence of game changing is to radically depart from what has been before. And uh, I think this is the model for doing it. Very interesting. And, and you know, uh, there's an old French phrase. Uh, I know that Donovan is in Paris, and I don't know if he knows this phrase, plus ça change, 
plus a la même chose. That's the more things change, the more they stay the same. I wonder how Mr. Fuller would respond to that. But I let's leave that one on the table right now, Kirk, and we can maybe blend it in into the into the discussion part of the show. Thank you, Kirk, and welcome. Can't wait to hear about some of your experiences as Deputy CIO of Atlanta. And let's welcome our third panelist. He is Mike Eberhardt at SAP, Global Industry Principal in the Public Sector at Hybris Software SAP. And Mike has sent us a quote from Mark Twain. Do I have to say a lot about Mark Twain? I'll just do a little bit. Samuel Langhorne Clemens, 1835 to 1910, better known by his pen name Mark Twain, American writer, humorist, entrepreneur, publisher, lecturer, and his most famous novels were The Adventures of Tom Sawyer back in 1876 and the sequel (laughs) The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in 1885, and the latter was often called The Great American Novel. If you want to know more, just Google him on Wikipedia. Here's the quote. The trouble with the world is not that people know too little. It's that they know so many things that just aren't so. (laughs) Mike Eberhardt, that quote always makes me laugh. How are you, Mike? Excellent, excellent, perfect. Thank Thank you you. for joining us again. Nice to hear your voice and Happy New Year. So tell me, how did you find this quote from Mark Twain and how does it relate to our topic today, Smart Cities Citizen Engagement? Mike? Uh, Okay, um, compared to Kirk... I was looking for a quote. <laughs> it did not reach out to me. <laughs> um, yes, um, I believe um, we never had so a high level of knowledge, high level of education than what we have today. But and on the end of the day, we know so little or we get confused by people who try to actually to, uh, to, uh, to convince us to a certain, um, certain uh, idea. And um, and this is typical right now today uh, in the world where we are living that we have to that we believe that we know everything, but actually we know we know so little, and actually we behave also not very smart in some cases. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sit there right on the shelf. Thank <laughs> you very much. Well, you know, as as you're speaking, Mike, I'm thinking of the proliferation of urban legends. Early on in the internet, when when, pep, when the web was beginning to be built, I don't even know when that was, but people passed along rumors and innuendos and, and legends and made-up stuff, and, and there was always an emotional hook to something in there that got people to believe. But I, I love the second part of the quote. Um, it's that they know so many things that just aren't. So, yes, we think we know. Thank you very much, and I appreciate your coming back with us. Where are you calling from today, or where are we finding you today, Mike? I'm very close to Donovan. I'm in Switzerland, my hometown and my home country. And what city in Switzerland are you in today? This is Zurich. Okay. The best city, I, the best city in Switzerland. I, well, I have to tell you, I spent as part of a <laughs> summer with a wonderful French family in Neuchâtel. And that was That's, a... Uh, Part of my That's education, I won't, I won't tell you how many decades or millennia ago it was, but it, it was a lot of fun, and I was very fluent in French in those days, and it was wonderful to try out everything I learned in the New York City public schools to try that out on the host family, and they said, oh my, you know so many wonderful French idioms. They were very impressed, so I was able to <laughs> converse fluently with them. So let's leave that one on the table. Don't ask me now, but I did make Donovan count backwards from five in French because he's in Paris today. So and he couldn't. So I did cinq, quatre, trois, deux, un and I did it. So 
Mike, you're supposed to be very impressed. Speaking of Donovan Gwynn, Donovan, I'd love to know, <laughs> this is the segment of the show called What's in Your Cup Today? Just want to have a little fun. So either what are you drinking that makes you really, really happy, or did you have something special over the holidays that really put a smile on your face in the holidays at the end of 2017? Donovan? Uh, well, I'd, I'd like to say I'm more interesting, but we had a, a really bad cold snap in Boston for about three weeks, so we didn't go many places. Uh, so I found myself drinking endless cups of Earl Grey tea uh, just made in my in my kitchen, which was very nice at keeping me warm, but uh, not very exciting, so... Well, I find Earl Grey tea very comforting. I might go have a cup after the show, and you've inspired me. So there. And by the way, can you share with us what you're doing in Paris? Uh, yes, actually. So I have some meetings here. Uh, we do a lot of work um, in transportation, particularly in uh, emerging areas of tolling and congestion charging and the like. Uh, so we've got some planning workshops on how we can bring more of those solutions um, to uh, you know, governments around the world, particularly in the area that I'm responsible for, which is North America, the U.S., and Canada. Thank you very much. Kurt Talbot, where are you today, and what do you love to drink, or what did you have over the holiday? Talk to us. In Atlanta, Georgia, um, I would say there's kind of two forks to that question. One, my wife just recently bottled some homemade kombucha. Looking forward to sampling that. And about a year or two ago, I splurged and got a... Um, a, a beer tap system, two head. So, oh yeah, it's fantastic. I, I, it changes my life, and so I have, I have perpetually on tap uh, seltzer water, which is fantastic, uh, homemade. And then right now I've got a keg from a local brewery called Scofflaw. Really, really good stuff. It's a an IPA, top notch. Scoff- Scofflaw, that sounds uh, a little bit illegal. Is that back in the days of... I assure you it's completely legal. I'm sure it is. I'm looking (laughs) it up right now. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, Scofflaw Brewing Company, beeradvocate.com. Our beer, Scofflaw Brewery, right? That's it? Yep, that's it. And it says, don't ask about what was happening in the basement where this juicy IPA was developed in our underground brewery. The beer that emerged pours a deep persimmon with fluffy khaki foam. The dark aroma emanating from the basement is one of earthy tones, citrons, and a hint of lemongrass. I'm going to stop there because I'm getting hungry. (laughs) Not even thirsty. I'm getting hungry. Thank you very much for that. And Monsieur Eberhardt, uh, you are in Switzerland, in Zurich. And may I ask, what time is it? And what are you drinking right now? Or what did you have over the holidays? So right now I'm in Switzerland, but over the holidays I spent um, with my girlfriend uh, in Cape Town in South Africa, <clears throat> and we had for sure um, um, good South African wine and including also sparkling wine. Um, it was pretty nice. It was great. Um, um, based on the, the situation down in Cape Town, they have no water since uh, 18 months, so they are running actually out of water in the next couple months because of the climate change. And it was it was during this time uh, it was freezing cold. It was windy, mm. freezing cold. Always um, around um, uh, 40, 50 Fahrenheit, and mm-hmm. um, not the best um, uh, climate for cold, nice sparkling wine. So we we changed actually um, to um, red wine. <laughs> 
Ah, there you go. Red wine to the rescue. Well, gentlemen, I'm not going to admit to drinking eggnog right out of the bottle over the holiday because I hadn't had it in years, but it was really, really good. But I didn't say that. Right now, uh, Mike Eberhardt, you may remember, they don't let me have anything with caffeine in it on radio show days. So all I'm allowed (laughs) to drink is water. Cool, clear water in a cool, clear mug looking out at a rather gray day. We had a lot of snow here in Durham, North Carolina. Donovan, we had 8 to 12 inches of snow here last week, and I, like a fool from New York, shoveled for an hour, double driveway, sidewalk, front walk, the whole thing, and within 48 hours, everything had melted. So what can I yeah. tell you? So, duh, well, I, I won't learn. do that next. Oh, yeah, yeah. Newcomer to the south. Yeah, Bonnie, don't shovel. It will go away very quick. Everybody laughed, but hey, my neighbors to the right shoveled. My neighbors to the left didn't, and I felt I needed to anchor in the middle here. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We are talking to Donovan Guin. Kirk Talbot, Mike Eberhardt. Our conversation is very important today. Smart cities, citizen engagement, mobile, connected, and digital. Are you, our listening audience, in a smart city now? Do you want to be in one? What can you do to share that interest with the powers that be in your city wherever you are? How are the smartest of the smart cities encouraging citizen engagement. What difference does it make? Is it worth the effort? We have so many questions to ask. So when we come back, we're going to open the roundtable with Donovan Guin at IBM, and we have a lot to talk about. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. I promise we'll be back. Aaron out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly city and local government leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as increased citizen and business demands for digital services, a growing variety of digital devices and sensors causing a data deluge, and increased volatility in politics and environment, coupled with constrained resources. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Game-changing Smart Cities of the Future is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future. And we're back. This is Season 
2018, Season 2, for our Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future radio series, Episode Number 1. Very happy to be back. My very special panelists are Donovan Guin, Kirk Talbot, and Mike Eberhardt. We're going to kick off the roundtable now with a statement that Donovan sent me before the show. Here's what he said, very telling. He says, mobile, personalized digital interaction is becoming the baseline expectation for an increasing portion of citizens around the world. Donovan, sounds like a dream come true. Is it really happening? Tell us more, please. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a couple of things in that. I, you know, the, the recent studies, at least in my region of the world, show that you know, people believe that governments are doing more in this area, and they're, they're satisfied uh, to, to the point in time that we're at. But you know, I, I also do, have done a lot of work over the years in the commercial sector, and I know that the um, the level of, of capability there is still exceeding uh, what governments are offering. And um, and so, if you look at how governments are are shaping their budgets today, they're they're spending in some cases up to twenty percent of their budgets on uh, digital and citizen engagement, um, and that includes mobile, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as this trend continues, right, particularly in cities where at least in the United States, and I imagine this is also true in Atlanta. But uh, you know, the, the population is 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 uh, millennial based. It's younger. It's growing rapidly. Very tech savvy, um, and so it's an opportunity, but also a challenge. I think for both city and, and state governments uh, to meet over time. Thank you very much. Uh, is this mainly driven by the millennials, Donovan? Is this coming from people who are opening their eyes to the possibilities of digital, maybe even from the seasoned city leaders? Are they saying, wow, we as citizens, we as consumers, we want to make this possible? Where's the push and the pull in this? If you could just enlighten me a little, and then we will get Kirk and we'll get Mike in on the conversation. What are you, what are you observing? <laughs> well, it's it's fairly broad based. Uh, millennials mm-hmm. are are the largest demographic group uh, that's growing in these cities, um, and so they're bringing a lot of uh, wealth now with the companies that they're working at, Google's and Amazon's, in the cities themselves. So mm-hmm. that is definitely a driver. But but you know, there there are folks that um, from all walks of life and incomes and ages that are you know are perfectly I mean you know comfortable work, using mobile and working digitally and on our increasingly frustrated about having to spend 20 minutes on the phone just to get someone to pick up to answer a service question on, you know, for, for the city. That's what I was looking for. That was that little nugget I was looking for was the frustration <laughs> level, the I don't want to have to push how many buttons, what language do I speak, and did I get the right person, and I waited 20 minutes, and they dropped the call. I think we're all tired of that, and we want services where we are as we are as we need them. Thank you very much, Donovan. Great intro to the topic. Mr. Kirk Talbot, we'd love to get your thoughts on what Donovan just talked about. Go ahead. How's it going in Atlanta? Uh, Well, it's going well. Um, But as my quote implied, I think there is always a lot of room for opportunity. And I... I do see the spin now, which is good. Government's becoming aware that to reach this next generation, they have to start to address their expectations. Um, and I think government is starting to wake up to the fact that it has a lot to learn from the commercial sector in terms of engagement. But I think the gap is a lot farther. And I think um, the public, for whatever reason, gives a lot more leeway to government not being up to speed with the commercial sector. Very interesting. Why do you think that we, I'm going to say we, why do you think we give government that leeway? Seriously? 
Oh, absolutely. I think, at least in the States, think about what your expectation is of going to the post office or to the DMV, <laughs> right? Yes. You, you, you don't want to know. <laughs> Imagine any private sector company operating like that. If you expected yes. to pay money to a company and get that level yes. of service, it's, in, it's incomprehensible. Why we accept it, I think it's because we don't feel we have a choice. Um, when you have competition for the delivery of services, it raises expectations very quickly. When you look at government for the vast majority of services that we deliver, it's a monopoly. And I think our consumers, our customers have been trained to not find alternatives. Wow, you hit a nerve. I'm not going to talk about my DMV experience right now because I want to hear what Mike Eberhardt has to say, but I will do a little sidebar in a moment. So, Mike, love to get your thoughts. Are they? Do you agree or disagree with very provocative statements here from Donovan and Kirk? No, actually, I, I absolutely agree with that, except the fact that we should not have just a focus on millenniums, who are actually the biggest community of who are using mobile technology. We should actually think about uh, what is the usability of an application or a service. And this should be designed based on uh, the individual person, if it's an elderly person or if it's uh, a pregnant, if it's a, um, a Chinese natural language person, based on the fact that, uh, the, that the municipality knows already all the information, we can actually shape the service for them. Any thoughts on uh, how this is going in cities in Switzerland, Mike? Are they are they doing the smart city? I know there are some major smart cities around the world. Is Zurich one of them? Um, absolutely not, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were all holding our breath for that one, weren't we, Donovan and Kirk? Oh, my goodness. What's he going to – absolutely. Well, is it coming to a city near you soon, Mike? What, what do you see? No, actually, the, the the challenge what we are facing is that um, we have a different democratic systems here in Switzerland. It is not um, um, as the same as in the United States. It is a direct democratic system. So each city, each town, each uh, state, each or and the country um, can uh, come up with their own taxation in the city. Mm -hmm. So how much money you pay for your tax, and they can use the money for their own purpose. So, and uh, they have to ask each individual person if they agree with um, the investments for the next 12 months. So uh, based on that, it is super complicated and actually they are not moving on as the citizens would like to see to move, that they move on. Very interesting. Donovan, before I let you, do you want to comment on what they said or shall I give you my little DMV horror story? Oh, well... <laughs> Uh, take the, do the TMV horror story, and then let me just get a couple of points in. All right, you make your point. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, ex I'm gonna cede to you. Right. Go ahead. You need to get your points in. Mine can wait. Go ahead, please. Right, so, so, two quick things, right? In order, in order for uh, a, a citizen or a customer in the commercial space to feel like the services they're getting are relevant and useful, they have to be personalized, right? I mean, mm -hmm. think about all the different services that any government offers its citizens, it can be overwhelming, right? And if you look at the websites for these cities, you know, they might have a directory of those services, but they're, they're content sites, and maybe there's a form to initiate a request. But after that, you're, you're on the phone with them. You have to go for appointments. It's very complicated. You know, think about how that would be different if you had uh, if that site or that mobile app, right? There was some kind of personalization service behind it that knew you. 
uh, knew that maybe, you, you know, my mother in Blacksburg, you know, there was a personalized service around her that got her in, 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 on her mobile phone or on her website all the services she needed. When she picked mm-hmm. up the phone and called, she didn't have to give all that information all over again. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's one aspect. And the other is the fragmented nature of government, just hearing the story about Zurich and Switzerland. I mean, it's fragmented enough in the U.S. where I am. I, I, I don't I can't understand how you guys get through in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you want to make a comment back? I think that deserves an answer, Mike. <laughs> good question, good question. You know, the, the point is that we are, um, that that our taxes is, are so low, so <laughs> that's the reason why we're not question mark so much. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just got a very, very important answer, didn't we, Mike? My little sidebar, if you gentlemen will allow me, uh, I moved from New York to here in the South. I know I, ne- I gave the name of the city. I won't repeat it again. And uh, I fearfully approached the the question of getting a local state license for my car and a driver's license. It took me three trips to two different DMVs. Um, one had a line waiting out the door. One, uh, I actually got to the counter and I presented all of my paperwork. I waited outside in 90 degree weather in a shopping center outside a DMV that was so poorly staffed that they went and took 90 minutes for lunch and didn't tell us online. There were a 100 of us online, ranging in age from teens, including people in, in mobile wheelchairs, up to seniors. And when we finally got in about eight at a time, and they did take the guy in the mobile wheelchair first as some kind of accommodation. He came out smiling. The same people at the desk were also giving driver's tests. So once in a while, one would come out with somebody with the keys and go to the road test. I'm not kidding. I got in after two and a half hours. This was a Friday afternoon. I presented all of my paperwork, and I was told straight to the face, you don't have the right papers. We can't accommodate you today. And I said, <laughs> what am I missing? She said, your driver's, your birth certificate doesn't have your married name. I said, I wasn't married when I was born. And this was one of the requirements was a birth certificate. They didn't like my paperwork. I said, if I come back to, on Monday, she said, no, you have to come back at 6.30 in the morning and wait online for another two hours like everybody else. I'm not kidding. So I went home very dejected, and I looked through paperwork, and I didn't have what they needed. I tried the first place again. Now, one thing I will tell you, there is a fear factor. When you walked into an official office like DMV, there are officers. I don't know whether they're packing guns or not, but you don't challenge them, and you don't talk back. So finally I got to the counter the third time. And the woman declared that my paperwork was not adequate, and I explained that my, my birth certificate did not match my New York license because I wasn't married when I was born, and she didn't like that either. I wasn't laughing. She said, I'm going to charge you $2 for a name verification. You have to fill out a form. And I said, I'd gladly pay the $2 so I don't have to go home again. And she made me fill out a form that was every name I have used legally in the past 20 years, every address I have used, every phone number I have used, the birth set place of my father, of my mother, and other relatives, every job I have had. And after a half hour, I was welcomed to the counter of a gentleman who turned out grew up 20 minutes from where I grew up in Queens, New York. And he was so friendly, he looked at me and he said, I'm not charging you the two bucks. Let me just get you your license and get you out of here. We talked for 30 minutes at the counter about growing up in Queens, New York. We didn't care who waited on the line, and it was just a wonderful experience, but because he was a real person. You want to comment on that, Donovan? I do have my license, and I do have my my place. It's a great story. You know, it reflects both the best and the worst, right, (laughs) of of government, right? So, um, 
Look, I, you know, it's interesting. We're actually working with the DMV up in, in Canada right now, and, and the thinking is, look, there's some portion of business that can be di- uh, conducted digitally that isn't being done today, and that might be a significant percent, percentage. Uh, if governments can do that, um, generally the citizens tend to be more satisfied. They get things done more quickly, uh, more accurately, and it's just a better experience. Uh, but at the same time, and I, I know... Mike gave a reason uh, for the problems in terms of not having much money, but the reality is that what we found in other sectors is that processes that are done digitally tend to be much less expensive per transaction. So mm-hmm. I've had clients look at their ROI and say, you know, it costs me anywhere between four and seven times more to serve someone for a transaction offline than it mm-hmm. does if I can do that online. So. So there's a, there's a great, I think, benefit both to the government and their, their, the way they spend their money, but also to the, the experience, right? So you don't have to go through some of that stuff that you had to deal with at the DMV. Hideous. And by the way, to get the plates for the car, I had to go 10 miles in a different direction to a shopping center where the plates office was inside of a mall with no obvious exterior signage. And I had to ask five people where the DMV was. And a lady in shorts with a lanyard around her neck directed me to the next counter. They take your, uh, they take the title of your car. They retrieve your title and they don't give it back to you. So you have to drive without a title for two weeks till the new title arrives in the mail. Never heard that before. That's a new one for me. Let's move on. Kirk Talbot, I'm looking at your notes here. You say, it is odd that we speak of citizen engagement in the government realm in such a detached and abstract way. Citizen engagement for most governments now is an afterthought or a process conducted just before elections. You are scaring me, Kirk. Talk to me. What does this mean? (laughs) You're scaring me. You just... You just addressed it right there. I couldn't have told a better anecdote because I didn't make that one up. It's from your lips. The DMV is a perfect example everyone's familiar with. They don't design the process from the beginning saying, how do we give the best customer service? What they do is when the pain gets bad enough that some (laughs) elected official is almost at the point of potentially losing their their position of power, be it a mayor or governor, whoever it is, they put together a commission and say, how do we fix this? And what they inevitably come up with is, let's send an electronic reminder to you that you have to renew your driver's license, and we'll call that customer service, right? So it's an afterthought that's added to an already broken process. Mm-hmm. And it's typically triggered because elected officials are sensing that the customer base is getting fed up with it. And the only way that the customers have of responding to it in any meaningful way, I'll point out, you didn't refuse to participate in the system. You didn't drive without a license. You yeah. didn't go and get a license from another state and simply drive in your home state, right? Yeah. You, you, there was no way of competing. The only thing you could maybe do is put together a voting campaign and get somebody reelected or not elected based on their ability to address this. And that's what typically triggers the focus on customer service or customer uh, perceptions, I should say. 
Very, very interesting. Just talk to me quickly, Kirk, about the election aspect of it. Is there motivation at election time? We're in a 2018 midterms coming up uh, sometime this year in the U.S., and, and this could be around the world, anywhere. Are, are elections a motivator to make things better, to listen to citizens, to engage more and involve them more? Or is it like, oh, well, how many gerrymandered districts do we need to appease to get, get these people back in office? What's the quick thought without getting specific? Yeah, without specifics. I think um, it's actually better than you might think from the surface. Well, having just gone through an election ourselves, um, and with no comments on this specific election, I watched the process itself. And what typically happened is all the candidates that run for an election establish their platform. And that platform typically includes, I'm going to fix these customer-centric issues with government, if you think about it. And then, based on who's elected, they go and they tell the body that they now govern, you need to make sure that we deliver on these promises that I made, which then becomes an impetus to go in and start fixing processes, whatever the resources may allow. But I would absolutely say on a positive note, the platforms that politicians run on when elected do in fact impact um, the end results. Okay, that's a very optimistic thought there. We're going to leave that one, and let's go to Mike. We'd love to get your thoughts on what Kirk added. How does it work in Europe in terms of a detached, abstract way and conducting better things just before an election? Mike, what's happening over there? Yeah, it is exactly the same in Europe. Um, it's always uh, from election to election. Uh, the interesting point is actually um, – based on the fact that the government has already all the data and um, are connected. So if, if, if we hand over actually a tool to the, to the individual person to raise their voice, to come up with ideas, um, this is actually the best way to engage uh, with the citizen and also learn from the citizen based on their experience, what they have with postal, with uh, moving house from place one to B. Um, the point is that... Um, um, most of the time we have not the impression that government is listening to us <clears throat> based on the fact that they are waiting till the next election. <laughs> and maybe then is something is happening. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, so it's a, u a universal curse, shall we say. Uh, let's go around yes. the table to Donovan Jaguin. Donovan, any thoughts on this, this um, not that interested until we need your vote kind of a thing? What are you observing? Well, it's interesting, right, as you're talking about this, I, I literally just uh, um, had a team start a project that, that uh, someone did because they, they got elected on the promise of fixing the DMV problem in their province up in Canada. Uh, it's a different province. Uh, the, the commercial uh, side of, of their province was complaining that it was too difficult to go through the, the, the process of permitting their drivers, their vehicles, renewals, that kind of thing. And they said, look, we, we can't be driving all over the state every time we need to do this. We need to do it digitally. Now, unfortunately, that's a reactive uh, thing, but in, in some ways it's mm -hmm. also positive, right? Good government is that which does respond to the needs of the people. We just think, to, to Mike's point, I think we, we find this also in the commercial space, uh, it would be better if this this listening was more proactive and more sustained and then uh, was connected to a more holistic, constructive process that not just said, okay, I'm going to give you an app, and that app you know, lets you fill out one thing or a little website that's not that intelligent, but actually thinks about this process end-to-end -end from the, the citizen's perspective and then it, it starts to work in a more seamless way, using mobile potentially, and maybe using web in other ways, but 
end-to-end, just as we see in the commercial space, it becomes more uh, seamless and what we would call omni-channel. I, I think there's great opportunities there for all governments to improve in that area. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, let me go back to Kirk. Anything you want to add, Kirk? This has been an interesting part of the conversation. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think it comes out of structure, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at business, businesses are constantly failing and starting. And when you start a new business, you reconsider everything from the ground up and you say, how can we do this process better? Governments really don't do that. So what you always have is a patchwork where you continue to add on to it. And to your point, um, uh, Donovan, it's it's a reactive process. Instead of starting from scratch and saying, how would we rebuild this knowing what we know now, getting better outcomes? So unfortunately, I think it's the nature of the beast, government being so perpetual. Oh, government being so perpetual. <laughs> I don't think I've heard those two words together in the in the same sentence. Can you define that for me before we move on? I'm very intrigued. Well, I, you look at the history, and in, in America, it's funny. We're excited when a city has 150 years uh, of existence. I can't, I can't imagine what it's mm-hmm. like in Europe with thousand-year-old cities. But the very nature of it is, you don't reboot the government every four years. You bring someone else in that kind of course corrects as a politician, but you never have an opportunity to build your licensing process from scratch if you're at the DMV or whatever it is. And I think we learn the most when we have to rebuild from scratch because we don't continue to perpetuate the old models. Um, But government doesn't have that opportunity. No one's going to say, let's completely throw out taxation as we know it. Let's start from a blank piece of paper and build a better tax model, right? It's always cumulative. Thank you very much. Perpetual and cumulative. I have to put those in my brain and work on those with cities. Thank you very much. Very true. Mike Eberhard, I'm ready to look at your statements you sent before the show. And let's turn to what governments know about their citizens that governments probably should be paying more attention to. Yes, I ended a sentence with a preposition. I apologize, gentlemen. But... But it's time to take a look at what Mike said here right on this topic. He said, whether in the municipality or at state level, almost all information about a citizen has already been collected. That's very important. We know all of us millennials or older demographic cohorts, we are sharing information freely, sometimes not so willingly, online. And it's being collected. That's the truth. So Mike adds, this data, however, is not used to support citizens in important personal issues such as my CO2 footprint as a community member. Mike, let's expand this. This is a very important part of our conversation. Mike Eberhard? Yes. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, the, the fact is that um, um, in my tax statement, I have to provide all the information what, um, uh, about my life, my income, uh, where I have to travel to, to get to work, what kind of transportation uh, I need uh, if, if I use a car or if I go with public transportation. All the information um, are in the system. And um, the, the, the question is just where are they? Uh, as usual, they are in different departments, in different silos. And um, and they are not communicating with each other. Based on the fact that they are isolated, um, uh, the government can actually not come up with, uh, with recommendations, with guidance, with uh, um, services, what helps me actually in my daily life. So when I have to, to apply for a new service, I have to run 
to the uh, to the department who are serving with with, uh, with my information, and I have to provide my information all the time on a counter or online. If it's online, they uh, I can download my uh, form. Then I have to fill out the form. I have to scan the form and I have to send it back. These kind of services are actually um, um, old, old and um, and uh, full of friction. And I have to provide information all the time and, uh, um, again and again. And this is definitely not really necessary today. We can actually combine all the information to one uh, environment where I, I control my data and I can actually also sh- uh, to, sh- uh, to accept uh, who is actually accessing my data and who are uh, not allowed to access my data. And these services are today possible. We have just to introduce it. Mike, what would we call the person in charge of this? I'm very intrigued with this, and we're going to go around the table to Donovan and Kirk in a moment. But what would we call the person in charge of this? For example, you mentioned in your notes uh, which university could your daughter enroll in and what financial possibilities are available if she wanted wanted financial aid and can the government make those recommendations. The scary part is that they already know a lot about us. The other scary part is that they can make recommendations to us. So who would be in charge of this? What would the name of that person be who would run that new department? Mike, any thoughts? Uh, any, a little bit of prediction here, but what do you think? <clears throat> I don't know which department or which person should be in charge for that. Um, um, uh, I think this is also um, based on how the city is structured. But on the end of the day, I don't care. I care just okay. um, about. <laughs> I care just about uh, that uh, I get the service. And uh, if the service is predictive or uh, give me a recommendation or helps me to to check out um, um, how my daughter is doing at the, at, the, at the school, that they can recommend a university and give me also the grant to support me because they know already that uh, what kind of income I have. And probably this is not um, high enough to, to send my daughter to uh, a different university with... Mm-hmm. Um, um, and this will be great to go, to get this kind of service to help me in my uh, in my situation with my daughter with with my environment that I can get um, the support from the government in a way that I think um, it is a good service and it helps me uh, to 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 run my family. Mike, I'm going to make a suggested title here. We'll run it up the flagpole for the other panelists. I'm going to suggest it would be. Chief Citizen Surprise and Delight Officer. (laughs) (laughs) Donovan, Donovan, stop laughing. I think I heard you. Donovan, do you like that or not? And what do you think about Mike's suggestion that they've got our damn data? And I did say that. What if they do something useful with it besides just taxing and annoying us? So, Donovan, what do you think? (laughs) Well, not a bad title, but I think we're going to need a bigger business card for that one. (laughs) Um. (laughs) But Mike and I have a like mind on this. Actually, it's uh, in my mind, it's something like a chief data officer or a chief citizen engagement officer. Uh, you do need to start thinking about this stuff holistically across the silos, even within the units. You're talking about I have to go one place for this paperwork, another place for that uh, uh, license plate. You know, it happens all over in education, the college that my, my kid goes to. You know, the, the business office and the registrar uh, right next door to each other, but they don't talk with each other. So the registrar mm-hmm. signs the kid up for classes but then doesn't send me a note to authorize the payment against the parent's loan that I've authorized, so then drops the class and this whole cycle starts, right? And this plays itself out in countless ways across government. But 
Uh, Mike's point is right. I mean, um, and, and corporations have had this problem for years because they, the data does exist for sure, but it's in all kinds of silos. And so mm-hmm. I think we're going to start seeing an emerging category of solutions where, particularly with cloud technologies, you can start to centralize that data, uh, which might sound a little scary to your earlier point, but it also finally gives you a way as a government to better uh, manage, share that information, think about GDPR and some of these. That's incredibly hard to do if all of that data is just all over the place and completely, frankly, ungoverned. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Kirk Talbot, Atlanta, how do you handle this? Do you, you, without giving away any government secrets, uh, what's, what's your perspective <laughs> on all the data you already have, how much you already know about your citizens, what you think they need, what you think they'd like you to do for them? Why don't you fill us in from a real smart city perspective, please? Um, so it's a tricky topic. Uh, Donovan's correct. We are in the process of consolidating the hundreds and hundreds of stores of data that we have already. Um, the The tricky bit is because of the nature of government, if we know too much about a person and we take an action on that, whatever it might be, that makes them uncomfortable, that really violates the trust relationship that we have. Um, Mm -hmm. Unlike a commercial sector where if you don't like what I'm doing, you can stop engaging with me, you don't have that choice with government. So one of our biggest challenges is, yes, there's a lot of possibility, but finding the mix of what we do with that information that is appropriate and comfortable with our constituents is the tricky bit. And when you think about how broad a range of cultures and people that live in a space, there's no one right balance. Everyone has a unique perspective on it. So tell me something. Do you get a, a knock, knock, knock on your door? Hello, Mr. Atlanta CIO. We, we need this from you. We need that from you. Do you have committees banging down the door or emailing you and telling you what they want you to do with that data, how they want you to accommodate them, to delight them, to make their lives easier? Is this something coming from the outside, or does it have to come from the inside of government going out? What's your, what's your perspective, Kirk? I think it needs to be an honest dialogue where the government sits down and says, look, here's the reality of what's possible. Let's explore together with the community what is right for this community. Where is the community's voice? Um, Through advice committees, um, steering committees, whatever. I don't think it could be the government telling the community, nor Mm -hmm. do I think it could be the community telling the government what to do, because there are... Okay. Other factors that control it. There are federal, state, whatnot regulations that are already in place. I think it has to be a, a grown-up conversation between both parties in which we agree this is how we're going to drive the process mutually. And Kirk, Kirk, if we thank you, if we if we look at the the demographic cohorts, I love that term, it, working side by side in enterprises, companies big and small, especially in the U.S. And Mike, you can comment on that and with respect to Europe. Um, we have five cohorts working together, and that could be young millennials. I know millennials are in their mid-30s now, OMG, already. <clears throat> but whatever is following them, and then all the way up to, to boomers like me who refuse to go home and be quiet, and we're still working, and we're not going home anytime soon. And in cities, you have 
even more demographic groups. You've got your kids, you've got your teens, you've got your college students, you've got your, your kids in the eight, nine-year-old range who have some spending money and they're digital. So you have so many more. Would you, if you're going to put together that citizen group, you have to do very broad outreach and make it comfortable and welcome for them to share their voice. Don't you, Kirk? It sounds daunting to me. Well, we do. I can say, I'll brag a little bit about Atlanta. One of the things they did in the uh, civic planning space is they created a studio, they call it, that they actually move around through the community over time. And it's, mm. it's designed to allow the citizens, the tourists, everybody that occupies the space of Atlanta to come in and have input to understand the constraints that we're operating under, the objectives that we want to accomplish, and give feedback and and start to have that dialogue. And it's been so popularly received. It's truly a drop in the bucket, but it is a, a positive example of something that is working. And it's possible. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. A little bit of a lead in there. You know what, gentlemen? It's time for our predictions round. I have a prediction of my own, but let's quickly go. I'm going to give you each 60 seconds. That's all we have. Donovan Gewin at IBM. Love to get your prediction. What will change? Let's say around 2020, it's hurtling at us. It's always been, wow, 2020. Now it's, what? 2020? It's almost here. So what will change about citizen engagement, mobile, connected, digital? Donovan, you're ready. Go ahead. I, I think it's going to be incremental from where we are today. You know, uh, there's a lot of technology change, but all of the, the headwinds and challenges we just heard, uh, governments are working on it, but three years is not that far away. So uh, a little bit better from where we are, uh, and maybe the emerging experimentation along the lines of something that we just talked about, maybe more personalized digital engagement will start, but not a lot yet. Okay, so let's pump it up to 2025. Will we see anything major by then, yes or no? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, yeah, particularly with with the rise of new technologies, um, you know, self-driving cars, uh, mm-hmm. the, the inability to, to spend two hours commuting, you know, 15 miles into the city every day. I, I think yep. you're going to start to see some, some dams burst and more, uh, m- much more change, much more intelligent automation. Thank you. Kirk Talbot, City of Atlanta, you can project anywhere between 2020 and 2025. Take your pick, Kirk. 60 seconds, all yours. Um, I think you're going to start to see pockets of government that actually don't just put a veneer of customer focus on it, but they start rebuilding some of their core processes based on both technology, based on pressing needs. For example, we talked about climate change, uh, where their backs are against the wall. They have to rethink how they do things. I think you're going to see in the next five to ten years, government's actually redefining the role of government and how it delivers services. But it will Thank be you very much. Spot. I like that optimism. Mike Eberhardt, 60 seconds. They're all yours. That's all I've got. Go ahead, Mike. <clears throat> I really believe that, um, that government are changing because based on the, the fact that uh, everyone is buying online, everyone, everyone is uh, using online services, and they come up with, uh, with services to make our life easier. I'm pretty sure this will happen, and this will happen uh, uh, very soon. And and I really hope that they are learning from the mistakes, that they can yes. um, um, move on in a more convenient way also in the future. 
Very polite and very on point. Thank you, Mike. I have a prediction for the three of you. My prediction is that in the next half hour, you are going to receive an invitation from me to do part two of this very exciting topic on our flagship show, Coffee Break with Game Changers, in February. And I'm going to predict that all three of you will accept my invitation. That's my prediction. So I want to do a shout out to the three of my special guests. Think about it. Donovan Gewin at IBM, Kirk Talbot at City of Atlanta, and Mike Eberhardt at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Shout out to Aaron, our engineer extraordinaire with the patience of a saint at World Talk Radio, the business channel. Here's my call to action and take it to heart. Fast. Oh, shout out to Marlon Zelkowitz, who is managing this series. And Marlon, we are off to a wonderful start here on season two of Smart Cities Radio. Thank you very much. So here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What in the world are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.